Well, I have not had the privilege of being a world traveler, but I have watched one on television, so I think that's pretty good. Uh, I have watched an idiot go abroad, which is always delightful to watch an idiot go abroad, more than somebody capable. And one of the things you'll notice really quick, if you watch any shows or you get to travel yourself to any exotic places, is that you will see instantly, man, there is a lot of diversity for this singular species known as the human race. I mean, you would think because we're a singular race that we would have tons and tons in common, but there's actually a lot of diversity, right? You get out there, you start to look around, you instantly are are, are met with different languages and different cuisine and architecture and customs and dress and hobbies and art and games that the children play. I mean, all sorts of diversity instantly hits all of your senses. You realize we're a very differentiated group of people. And yet, oddly enough, all of that difference finds a commonality when you travel all over the world. And the commonality that you will find doesn't matter where you go, it doesn't matter if it's an industrialized nation, doesn't matter if it's third world, doesn't matter if it's out in the brush, if it's the urban city. You will find in every location something familiar. And that familiar thing or things are going to be things like you're always going to find walls. You're always going to find fences. You're always going to find dividing lines. You're always going to find the spirit of segregation throughout the world. No matter where you go, no matter what you see, there are barriers, there are blockades, there are lines that remind us that as much as we're diverse in language and culture and architecture, we are just flat out diverse. Right? That is the human constant. No matter where you go, no matter what you see. Now, we have these divisions for all sorts of reasons. For some, it's for comfort, right? This is why if I go to your house, probably most of you have a fenced-in backyard because, again, you like the comfort of having the fence. Now, if you don't have a fence, it's probably because you're on acreage, right? So you just have a natural buffer. You can't see your neighbor through the acreage, right? But that's what we do. Sometimes we put up a fence or a wall for protection, right? We see that when you think about an embassy. You never think about an embassy without somehow a wall and a gate. It's designed to protect. Sometimes we build walls for preservation. If you ever go by a monastery, right, or a convent, there's always these big, tall, high walls because, again, it's designed to preserve what is inside from that which is outside. Sometimes we put these up for our identity, right? That's even state lines. That's identity. It's national borders. It's our identity by way of a wall, or a line of separation. And tragically, while there's a lot of good that can come out of our diversity, sometimes in this it establishes, whether we like it or not, a mindset of segregation. A mindset of difference. A mindset that does not necessarily foster unity. Where we start to think in terms of, well, if it's on my side of the wall, the line or the fence, it's the good side. And that side is the bad side. We have this wall or fence or line to protect that which is pure on my side, and it also exists to kind of keep out what is bad and impure on your side. And so we start to build these different lines. And this is even modern America. We don't always do it with walls and fences and lines, though a lot of that is true, but we even do it ideologically. Right? Separators, lines, sources of division. See, in our culture, we have the walls of isms. All sorts of isms, right? Conservatism and liberalism. Modernism and postmodernism. Capitalism and socialism. Atheism and deism. All these isms to say, this is my camp, that is your camp. My camp's right, your camp's wrong. My camp's good, your camp's bad. My camp solved it, your camp is breaking it more and more every day. Right? In religion, especially, man, we're good at isms. We have Catholicism and Lutheranism and Methodism. Notice there's no Baptistism. They were on it. Right? They're just Baptists. That's it. Right? But these are all lines of separation and segregation. And I'm not saying that all lines are bad. I'm not saying all lines are wrong. But what I am saying is the more we draw lines and build walls and erect fences, the more we get this mindset that separation is the key going forward. Segregation and division is how you keep the peace. And yet when we look at the Bible, we find that there is no road to peace through segregation. Because what we do inadvertently 
is that we deify our tribe and we demonize the other tribe. We create idols in our tribe, we create villains out of their tribe, and so uh, there isn't the power of unity that we, we so desperately want. I mean, even as a country, we say, one nation under God, indivisible, and I go, that's just not true. We're constantly just injecting into the equation things that divide. And tragically, and I mean literally tragically, this happens just as much among Christians as it does in the rest of the world around us. Which is so strange because the essence of Christianity, the very thing Jesus has come into the world to bring, is unity. He came into the world according to chapter 1, verse 10 and verse 22 to unify all things under Himself, all things under Christ. His mission statement is the unification of the universe. Heaven and earth are going to touch. All the people of God are going to be one. That is the concrete mission statement of Jesus. That's why He goes to the cross. That's why He rises from the dead, to unify. Right? That's His purpose statement. But sometimes in Christianity, man, we struggle with this idea. We do. We, we might be good at unifying in really small pods, right? We circle the wagons to protect us from the outside world. But again, that's not really the calling of Christianity. Sometimes when we circle those wagons, we, we spend a lot more time vilifying, talking about what's broken out in the world, what the problem is, how they're missing it, how the lost are lost. Or even sometimes how other Christians aren't as right as we would want them to be. I've been certainly guilty of that one. And I start using all the isms of what they are. Sometimes we circle the wagons, we accuse the world, we accuse other Christians, and then we pride ourselves on our ability to not be of the world, except in the places that we really like that part of the world for us, but other parts we don't like. See, these are the challenges These are the walls and the dispositions and the biases and the mindsets that we face in here, in life, in general. Yeah, what we're going to see Paul say today is that in Christ, the walls and the isms need to be called out for what they are. With rare exception, should there be these strong dividing lines, and those strong dividing lines need to be really clear what they're about and why they matter and why you want to draw that line. But many lines and isms should be called out for what they are, which, is demo- which are really demonic things that divide. They're just intended to create friction. They're intended to ooze superiority or elitism. So in Christ, we need to call the isms out. Additionally, Paul's going to say in Christ... The walls are to be torn out. And they're to be torn out by people who remember where they have come from. How they've been saved from their once very poor decisions and alienation from God. How they've been saved by grace into a whole new life. With a whole new disposition. That's going to be Paul's point. So, if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 11. Uh, At this point, you're uh, either pushing your finger to a screen to get there, or you have this really archaic thing called a Bible, which is made of paper and leather. They're amazing. And you can get to Ephesians chapter 2 through that method also. Now, as you're on your way there, I want to remind you really quick just what's been going on in Ephesians, right? Ephesians chapter 1. The first half of that chapter says, you know what? God has come to save radically. It's an ancient grace. It's felt itself in the presence and person of Christ and seals us in the Holy Spirit. So all these great promises, man, God saves by grace. From there, Paul prays, man, I pray that you know the salvation. I pray that you know what it means to be redeemed and adopted and forgiven and sealed in the Spirit for great things. Man, I pray that you get that. Then he gets into chapter 2, and he says in chapter 2, oh man, because this, this is a really powerful grace. We were really sinful. We were really broken. We were children of wrath. But God, in his mercy and love, saved. And he didn't just save us in grace so that we could have a nice, dandy life. He saved us in grace to bind us to things that he prepared beforehand that we should fulfill. He has a purpose for us. Set in eternity past, he has a purpose. And so he said, all this great stuff, and we can be basking in that. Yes, this is what God has done. Yes, this is how God has done it. Yes, I've got everything I need. This is so great. But then Paul brings us right back down to earth in chapter 2, verse 11. 
And he wants us to remember something that's really important for us as Christians. He wants us to remember who we are. Remember who we are. And really, in a lot of ways, to remember who we are currently, you have to go further back and remember who you were. Right? Because this whole thing has been, this is who you are in Christ. But part of what it means to be in Christ is realizing, well, you weren't always in Christ. Sometimes you need to stop and go, man, what, what are my roots? Where do I hail from? How does that shape my perspectives going forward? And so Paul reminds us of who we were, starting in verse 11. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh of hands, remember that, and then he's going to carry his thought. We're going to stop right there. Because it's kind of a weird thing anyway. But, but he's, he's grounding us back in who we used to be. Now, in the Ephesian context, we know that those people were all worshippers of Artemis. And again, they were estranged from God. And they, they were just pagan in their disposition and everything else. That was their problem. But also in this, they were the uncircumcision, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So this is a discussion about Jews and Gentiles, right? Which for us is a little foreign. We're like, we don't have the same kind of problem today, not directly, but indirectly we have the same problem, which is racial bias, ideological bias, social division, camps, groups, isms. And that's all this is here. And so one group would look at the other group and say, oh, you're bad. And the other group, vice versa, would do the same thing. So the circumcision, the Jews, they would look at the uncircumcised crowd and literally go like, you guys are just uncircumcised. There was nothing, it wasn't like a description of how they had a covenant or a lack of covenant with God. It was like a cut down. Your dad's so uncircumcised. I mean, that's kind of what it was. It was designed to inflict this sense of shame. You don't measure up. Because in the Jewish mind, they looked at circumcision and say, well, uh, man, the reason we're circumcised is because we have a covenant with God. God went to Abraham and said, you know what? I'm going to bless your family, and the way you know you're in covenant with me is all of your household members that are male are going to be circumcised. That shows you're in covenant with me. So the Jews would look and say, hey, we're circumcised. We have a covenant with God through Abraham. We're good to go. All you uncircumcised types, you don't have any covenant with God. God doesn't want you. God doesn't need you. God isn't seeking you. That was sort of the attitude. Now, that wasn't the original design. You go back to when God calls Abraham. God says to Abraham, uh, here's the deal, man. I'm calling you out. I'm saving you by grace. I'm changing your very nature, giving you righteousness so that you would bless the nations. So the circumcision thing was meant to bless the nations. But, but the Jews had gotten so far off track that now circumcision was just to bless their nation and curse the other nations. They thought about their temple and they thought, man, it's really good that we have a temple where the inside of the temple is for the Jews and then there's this court of the Gentiles because they're not terribly great. In fact, by Paul's day, the way that Jews saw Gentiles was really simple. They said, you know what? Uh, the best Gentile you ever meet is good for killing. That, that's actually a statement they would say. The best Gentile you will ever meet is only good for killing. If you asked a nice Jewish person in the first century, why did God create the Gentiles? They'd say, for kindling to keep hell's fires burning. It's literally a statement. In fact, they had a law in their Mishnah that said, if a Jewish man comes across a Gentile woman and she is in labor and struggling, he is not allowed to help her for fear that he would bring another heathen into the world. So when the circumcision, the religious establishment, looks at the world, they look and they go, you're just going to hell, man. You're just going to hell and not fast enough. Because you make bad decisions, sinful decisions, you're pagan, you're filthy, you're perverse, you're all these kinds of things. So there was no affection for them, no hurt for them, no aching for them, no tears for them, no brokenness for them. It was just looking at the world and saying, you know what, you're just, you're just wrong, you're just sinful, you're just stupid. We don't, we don't have anything for you. Except judgment and criticism and ism. We have walls for you to keep you out and to keep us good people in. The same sentiment went the other way, right? So the Gentiles looked at the Jews and they're like, you're elitist and you're weird and you only have one God. And man, you're actually circumcision. Whoa, that is painful looking. You know, and so they had opinions. They, they didn't look at the Jews and think, oh man, we really want to be like you. They looked at the Jews and said, you just judge us all the time. You just criticize us. You just constantly measure us against your law that we don't fulfill. Can't help but look at that and say, you know what? That is sometimes what we do too. 
We forget where we've come from, right? So we, we, we look at our world and we go, man, it, it's got this sin and this sin and this sin and this sin and, and, and they do all these things and there's immorality and they celebrate certain just behaviors that are wrong and, and instead of breaking, weeping, hurting, dying inside for them because they're lost in folly, we actually kind of go, oh, it's because they're this and they're that and we get this elitism and we segregate and we don't hurt for, we just judge. And that's really what was happening in this context, right? So the Jews and the Gentiles were segregated. And I look and I go, and sometimes we fall victim to the same thing. I mean, it's not hard to, to, to find the divisions in our culture at all. It's real simple. If you have cable or direct TV or whatever, all you have to do is flip between, like on my TV, 360 and, and 356. MSNBC, Fox. MSNBC, Fox. MSNBC. Do that for about 15 minutes and you'll get the divide. Right? You'll get the divide. You'll totally get the divide. No question on it. You'll know that there are strong lines between camps. Sometimes you find the right Christian preacher or book or whatever else and you're going to you're going to hear the divided lines. And so Paul says, "Man, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget where you came from because if you forget where you came from, you're not going to go to others who need to come from that same place. You're going to forget them or or worse yet, you're going to judge them. You're going you're going to only send them the message that says they're wrong and not the message that says and there's hope and there's potential for change." So he says, remember that one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. He says, more than that, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He says, man, don't forget that you were fundamentally Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. You're like, thanks, Paul. That's a huge encouragement. But it was their condition. It was. And, and it's having to remember that that's where we came from. Remember that that's how religion even viewed us at one time. Right? There was no hope for us. There was no possibility for us. No plan for us. Right? That's where we came from. Also keep in mind that when we were in this state, when we were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless, we were cleaving to systems to save ourselves. And when we see the world around us doing things that are counter-Christ, anti-Christ, rewriting Christ, changing the rules, flipping the morals, here's what we need to do, consciously do. Instead of just having offense, I'm not saying some of that isn't offensive, but what I'm saying is instead of stopping at offense, we need to stop and also look and realize what they're trying to do is save themselves. They're trying to create salvation for themselves without the one true Savior. That's all they're trying to do. And that's what should cause us to break for people trying to save themselves. It's the blind leading the blind. They're just out there in darkness. They don't know better. So they try to save themselves through all sorts of methodologies. For example, I've been a lot just recently looking at the whole idea of how we've expanded the borders of sexual acceptance. Right? I mean, we've really hyperinflated the borders and really, really fast in a lot of ways. And we look at that and go, oh man, see, it's just, it's, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, man, it's over the edge. It's beyond slippery slope. Slope's gone, no slip, just cliff. Right? And we look and we can be actually really offended. But you know what the world is doing with sexual acceptance? They're saving themselves from their sins, right? They, they carry the guilt and shame of certain sins. So how do you remove guilt and shame? You just remove the sin, and you remove the guilt and the shame. In fact, if anything, you actually say you're really courageous if, if, if you admit these things and do these things and, and follow these paths. And so what that does for those people, go, wow, this is like salvation for me. I finally feel free for the first time in my life. It's an artificial salvation, but it's just them coming up with the gospel, and that should break our heart, not anger or irritate us as much as it breaks our heart. Because again, that's a dead end. That's not a savior, right? If anything, it's an accelerant to greater sin, not salvation. You look at the concept of socialism, for example. All socialism is is humanity trying to save itself by bringing unity under a structure. We'll all be one. We'll all be similar. We'll all have the same stuff. We'll have the same opportunities, the same advantages. We all share all in common. It's just salvation through the human 
ingenuity mechanism. They can't really save, but that's all they're trying to do. It's just a gospel. It's just a false gospel, but it's a gospel in their minds, right? You look at the social sciences, salvation from self, through diagnosing me with this and testing me on that and giving me this. I mean, helping me understand what my identity is. It's all the lost world just trying to save itself. And, and I say all of that so that I realize and that we realize that we all used to be like that. We all used to be like that. And there are times where I still do that, right? Where God's Word says, man, this is how you have peace or this is how you have joy or this is how you have security. And instead of going to what that says, I'll go to idols, I'll go to false saviors and false gospels, and then I'm not fulfilled. So I shouldn't be shocked that the world does it in full measure because they don't even have Christ in any measure. I have Christ in measure, and and I still fail at this. And so again, it should cause humility in us to go, man, this is just what the world does and I used to be like that I used to be like that I still sometimes struggle with that and so what it does not need is my derision what it does need is my direction right and the gospel is direction and that's why Paul having said hey man remember where you come from moves right into therefore realize what he did realize what Christ did Remember what you used to be. Remember how you used to act. Remember how you used to be characterized by the religious establishment. Remember that. And then with that in your head, realize what he did. And when I say realize, I mean two different definitions. I mean them both simultaneously. One is this, man. Just grasp and understand clearly what Christ did. Just get it in your head. Just lock it in. The other is, man, when we realize something, it is to, to make it real, to give reality to it. Right? Give it legs. Not just a thought, it's a disposition. It's not just this, this check box on a test of, hey, what do we believe? But it's really this thing that we embrace and begin to do, right? So we realize what he did. We start to go, man, I'm going to actually play out the, the very essence of what the gospel creates. We don't do the gospel, we live from the gospel. But in this he's going to say, man, realize what he did so you can live from the gospel. He says, but now, verse 13. Right? So, we were this, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This statement is to invoke humility. That's all it's for. I mean, honestly, it's all it's for. Right? So if we start thinking, you know what, I used to be bad, but now I'm good, and the world's bad, and I've solved it, and they're dumb still, and I'm moral, and they're immoral, and I'm sick of this, and they drive me nuts, and everything else. Paul says, whoa, wait, slow down. What did you do for your salvation? Slow down. What did you do that gave you such moral superiority? What did you do that put you in the seat of judge? What did you do exactly again? Because the answer is nothing. We did nothing. Nothing. He says, we were far off. Right? We were far off. We were way over here. We were doing what everybody else does. We were over here saying, you know what? Uh, freedom through sexual acceptance. Uh, unity through socialism. Uh, you know, whatever the list is. Right? We were over here just writing lists. This is how we're going to save ourselves. We were far off. And while we were far off, Christ comes grabs us and brings us near right anybody says hey i came to christ i would say paul would say no christ came to you right well we were far off he came near he came to us and therefore our status of being good christians paul would say whoa you're only a good christian because you've been brought near by the blood of christ I'm not a good Christian because I read my Bible. I'm not a good Christian because I pray. I'm not a good tr- Christian because I try to keep the moral code. I'm not a good Christian because I show up on Sunday. I'm not a good Christian because I like to sing. I'm not a good Christian for praying every Wednesday. I'm, not, I'm a good Christian only because I'm in Christ. That's it. The gospel is so radically humbling. See, we like religion, which is why we like the walls of religion, because religion says, here's what you do to earn, here's what you do to achieve, here's how you maintain good status, whatever else. Right? So we can take a lot of pride in our adherence, in our discipline, in our rigor. And from that, sometimes we look at others who don't, and we judge. We shake our head. We get frustrated. Paul says, oh, don't forget where you come from. 
You were in Christ. You were once far off, but you've been brought near by His blood. What I found over the course of my own life, my own experience, is in an environment where there is really clear humility, you have a high possibility for unity. Right? So when there's a lot of humility, real high quotient for unity. And when there's a lot of superiority, you have a lot of room for division. A lot of it. Because to see real unity means I don't make much of me. And to see real unity means I don't get all wrapped up in my opinions or my expectations or whatever else. It's very different. Where I go, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be like Jesus. I want to be a, a servant. I want to be a slave. I, I want to be the least of all. I want to be at the end of the line. I want to have the worst seat at the table. And man, when that is true among the people of God, there is unity. And, and when it's, no, 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 it's not that. It's all about my own independence. I exert my own thoughts. I'm really opinionated about life and everything else. Man, that fails to breed unity. Just fails. We struggle with it. And think from this, there's something even deeper. Something that Paul says in verse 14 that is central, I think, to the text. He says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, who you were once far off and brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Now, now this is important both to the immediate text and, and to something I want to get into for just a second. So I'm kind of jumping out of the theme, but I'm going to bounce it right back in at the end. I want to start off by reminding us of what I always say about peace. Peace is not, right? Say it with me. Peace is not. Peace is not. Peace is not the absence of strife, of hardship, of conflict. If you define peace as the absence of something, you will be perpetually disappointed. Because you will never experience peace. Because you will never have a time where there is the absence of hardship, strife, or conflict. Ever. It is not the biblical definition of peace. At all. At all. I mean, God did not even remotely try to impose on us the thought that the absence of those things are the definition of peace. Now, you might have the absence of those things for a season in your life, and you might actually try to use the word peace, but you know what? It's going to go away real fast because something new is going to happen. But here we see what is the definition of peace. He himself. He himself is our peace. God is the presence of peace. Our relationship to God, our need of God, our interaction with God, our sense of experiencing Him in our life, that breeds peace. Now here's what I've realized about this. This is this hard truth, and some of us are going to go, yes, that's it, I got it, and others are going to be mad that I say it. Here's the bottom line. Many of us, as Christians, do not know peace because frankly, we do not spend a great deal of time pursuing presence. We just don't. It's like an automatic default. Right? I meet Christians that just all the time, they're like, I read about peace, I read about joy, I don't have peace, I don't have joy. Here's why. Three key reasons we don't experience peace and joy in the Christian life. Here's the first one. We're going to love it because it's true. Ready? We just like to distract ourselves a lot. Distraction. I mean, honestly, we choose a hundred other things before cultivating a close relationship to Christ. Right? We get out the calendar and we fill it up. We got work and sports and friends and hobby and chores and school and all this stuff. We fill it all up. Right? Just load it full of stuff. And then we go, man, I don't know why I don't sense the peace of God in my life. I don't sense the joy that he promised. Because, again, Jesus said, I'm going to give you a peace unlike that which the world gives. So the world's peace is, again, the absence of conflict, strife, and suffering. Right? Jesus promises peace in the middle of that. I mean, you look at when he actually makes that promise. I mean, this is in the shadow of the cross. Right? Here's a guy talking about peace and joy in the shadow of the cross. How do you have that? Presence of God. But we sometimes so distract our life, peace will just be elusive because we don't cultivate the presence of God. If it isn't for distraction, another reason we don't experience the peace of God 
is frankly, we just like drama. We just like drama. I mean, what good is it if you're going through a hard time and somebody comes to you and, and, and then they say, how are you doing? And you go, man, I have real peace. It doesn't usually go much further than that. They're like, oh, awesome. And it stops. Nobody sits down for the big conversation about you have peace. Like, oh, it's so bad. I'm so depressed. Oh, tell me over coffee. You know what I mean? Like, like now we got a conversation going. Right? Now I can go and I can complain. I can be frustrated. I can be hurt. I can vent in the process. I can inflict some damage on others that have hurt me. I and mean, all of love drama. Sometimes we love drama so much we don't really want to pursue peace. Because again, peace would remove much of the drama. I think a third reason we don't always experience the presence of God translating into peace is because sometimes God for us is just a duty. He's just a duty. Right? So I go to church and I pray and I read and I give and I serve and I do these different things because, again, it's what's expected of me. So I check off all of the boxes every day. Every day I do all the boxes. And God becomes kind of this, this, this chore list. And I did all my spiritual chores. And see, God is less interested in the chore list. He's way more interested in you and your heart. He's way more interested in you saying, God, I don't even, I don't even know what to do right now. I just, I just know I need you. I'm just begging for you. I'm pleading for you. I'm asking for you. I'm throwing myself before you. God, I don't even know you that much right now. I feel like you're distant. I feel like you don't care. I'm really, really mad about this. Just, man, you pour it out. Say, God, I just need your presence and peace. But boy, if God is just a duty, check mark, check mark. I'm a good person. I do good things. You may not feel his presence. Because ultimately, peace is found in this determination to dwell. Which is why I go back to, for he himself is our peace. Now, how does this play under the banner of unity? Well, if we have the peace of God, true peace then we're going to have a passion for what God is passionate about. And the thing that God is most passionate about is unity. Most passionate about. That's why I said earlier, right? Go back to chapter 1, verse 10 and verse 22, where it says, hey man, here's the big goal, unification. Here's the big idea, bringing it all together. And when we have peace, real peace, generated by God, not just the absence of things, but generated by God, you know what? From that, you see an absence of conflict and critique and criticism and cantankerous attitude. It, it just, those things start to dry up. Right? They dry up more and more. It's true in marriage. It's true in families. It's true in life. When you have the peace of God and you trust God for all things and you're going to Him to sort out all things, it just creates a different disposition. And so Paul says, man, this is what he's accomplished for us. It was the very intention behind the cross of Christ to bring peace and to create unity. That's what he came to do. Verse 14 goes on. It says, He was our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. Right? So he removes the law, which is great, because you know what the law was good at? Division. It was awesome at it. There's Jews, there's Gentiles. There's into the camp, out of the camp, right? There's foreigners, there's covenantal people, there's life, there's death. Many times in the law it says separate out, separate out, separate out, separate out, separate out, separate. Favorite theme of the law. It was devised to divide. But then in Jesus, we see the unifier. And what was his design? He comes into the world, dies on the cross, and there's this veil in the temple, and it's ripped in two. Right? Because the whole thing is, no longer is there going to be a divide. It's not going to be only special people who come into the Holy of Holies, and everybody else in, in different spheres of influence is allowed access. He says, no, that's over, that's done. It's on the cross, and he looks at John and says, John, take my mother as your mother. He unifies them. He looks at the people that crucified him, and he says, Father, forgive them. He, they don't even know what they're doing. He's trying to bring unity. The cross is a crux of unity. And so Paul says the same thing here. Man, this is what he's done. He's taken this cross, this instrument of death and separation, and he's brought life and unity. That's what he's brought to us as a church, as his people, right? That is the heart of God. That is the plan. 
And as I kept saying, his goal is to unify everything, but where that starts is here. It starts with us. We are the kernel of that unity. Right? Where he, he takes this bizarre little band of people, right? He's like, all right, I'll take uh, the, the fisherman guys, I'll take the tax collector, a zealot hates a tax collector, rock, paper, scissors. I mean, it's like, you know, like he joins all these diverse personality types and says, now, all right, now I'm going I'm to change the world starting here. And then he takes all of us, all kinds of different personality types, right? Nerds and jocks and brains and farmers and programmers and stay moms and working moms and single moms and you know single dads and teens and takes us all together and says all right I'm going to start unity through that I'm going to change the world through that I'm going to show the power of the gospel through their capacity for unity that's why I say it starts with us we are one through the cross, one people new, one church global, one spirit fresh, one father loyal, all one in Christ. So my encouragement to us, encouragement to myself, look at myself in the mirror, is maybe some of the things that we need to do as individuals, as a church, to better forge our unity, because unity is so powerful. Maybe we need to do simple things like, you know what, hold some of our opinions a little more lightly. I mean, I had to think about myself. I'm like, man, I got a lot of opinions. Some of them are funny. Sorry, Sultan, but that's funny, you know. Um, cats, that's funny, you know. Um, maybe I need to hold my opinions a little bit more lightly. Maybe I need to hold my offenses a little bit more loosely. It's amazing how much I hear now these people go, oh, they were so offended. I'm like, really? First world problem. That's what that is, all right? Like, like, there used to be, like, really big things, like, you know, the bank took your farm. I can understand being offended, you know. But now it's, like, little things. Well, they didn't wave to me at Starbucks. I'm so offended. Oh, my goodness. We need a little emotional sling for you. All right, I know. My opinions. Keep them to myself. All right, so. Um, so, hold our offenses a little bit more loosely. Hold our expectations maybe more humbly. All right? Do things like think the best, hope for the best. I don't know about you, I know I'm, I'm definitely the melancholy type that, that insulates myself by just automatically expecting doom. That way it's just nothing but uphill from there, right? Hope the best, pray for others, pray for me, pray for me to love others that frustrate me or irritate me or bother me or I don't think measure up to what I think is right, whatever else. Speak kindly as much as possible to people. For the church to see unity as precious as fidelity, charity, virginity. I mean, it's weird. Like, there's some things we just go, oh, and those are, those are special. Those are precious. This is what we protect. We raise our kids saying, oh, you know what? This is a precious thing you want to save for your wedding night. So precious. How much do we talk about how precious unity is? Right? Because this is the very reason the Holy Spirit fills the church. This is the very reason Jesus came and died and rose, was for unity. It is precious. The world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. Unity is precious. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. We're going to see that in Ephesians chapter 4, which is the outplay of Ephesians chapter 2. Unity is special. Remember what Jesus did for you and do things like he would do them. Right? That honors unity. Paul goes on and says, he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This says a lot of things, but in a very simple way, what it says is, you know, we have the Holy Spirit in which to do this. And he's gone to the people furthest away and he's gone to the people closest and near and he's brought us all together as one. There is no separating agent, so fight for peace in the spirit because we are all God's kids. We are in one family. We're saved to be reconciled to one another. We're saved to reconcile the lost to God who reconciles, right? And we don't do this in our own might, our own strength. It's not fake smiles and artificial waves and nice etiquette and everything else. We do this, we relate to one another based on who we are in Him. We relate to one another based on who we are in Him. 
See, we've been given the capacity for unity in the church and mercy to the world all in him. Verse 19. He tells us, hey man, so then because of what Christ has done, even though you were estranged, he says now you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple to the Lord. Now Paul makes this really great statement, but if he turns this into his English teacher as a freshman, she circles a C plus at the top because this is really crazy. And the reason is because this dude, he can't land on metaphors. We're citizens, we're a household, we're architecture, but we're agriculture. I mean, what, what is it? We're buildings that grow, like root systems. And it's like, what, what are you saying? Well, he's just compounding all these metaphors and ideas, trying to help us get the vast, full measure of what it means to be unified, right? So break it down. The first thing he says is, you know what? You can seek unity, I can seek unity, we can seek unity, because we have a shared citizenship, right? Verse 19 again, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. We are all citizens, not of the United States of America, that's just secondary, man. Our primary citizenship's in heaven. If anything, we need to see ourselves more as people with backpacks and tents. Too often we're slapping down brick and mortar and we're building our own structures on this planet like we're sticking around forever. We make a lot more investment here than we make investment there. And Paul would say, man, you better start thinking like a, like a nomad. Think more like somebody that's tenting it in life. We're all sojourning in this life together. And if you've ever been in a foreign country and you haven't seen any Americans for like a couple of days or a week and you come across one, you instantly like, you speak English. Oh, I speak English. You know what a Big Mac is? You do. That's awesome. Right? Like, just Unity. Because there's solidarity. There's instantly all this stuff you share in common. And so you need to look and say, man, with Christians, I instantly share a ton in common. A ton. So that should motivate me to be unified with those whom I share so much. More than this, he says, you can seek unity because you have familial relationship. He says, we're all members of the household of God. We're a family. As Redemption Church, we're a family. Sometimes we treat it as an organization, an institution, this thing that gathers together on Sunday morning, and we watch and listen and leave and everything else, but really we're a family. And a good, solid family makes sure that there is solid assurance of being in the family. Right? We love you, we care about you. you are, you're part of us. We should have that kind of mutual assurance. We should have mutual acceptance. Hey, sometimes we struggle, we make mistakes, we sin, we fail, and we should be willing to accept one another. But also in that, there should be accountability. Which is, hey man, I love you enough to come alongside of you and say, I'm concerned about this, I'm troubled by that, I want to help you get through this. Not wagging the finger, and certainly not wagging the finger to another person about that person, that's bad. Right? But really coming alongside, having that accountability, we should be like family at Thanksgiving. Right? Loud, obnoxious, grandpa's over there, his pants are unbuttoned, he's asleep on the couch. Right? All that. Like, we should be family. Right? Familiar with each other, connected together, having assurance, acceptance, and accountability. He says, that's why you can seek unity. And he says, finally, you can seek unity because you have divine craftsmanship. How does this divine craftsmanship play out? Verse 20, first of all, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We have the word of God to instruct us. Right? So when we go, man, I, I, I need to be unified, I need to seek relationship, I need to remedy some things, just go to this. This gives us all we need for relationship. I, I, I know that's so weird. Like, this thing's old. This is an old book. I got it. But it's brilliant for relationships, right? Because it'll tell you, hey, if somebody's got something against you, you go to them. Hey, you've got something against somebody, you go to them. You go in a spirit of gentleness. You go bearing burden. You go wanting to be clear. You want to make sure that there's unity, all of that. But you go to them. Hey, but they're my enemy. Oh, they're your enemy. Okay, get, bring cold water with you while you do this. This is perfect. Right? I mean, this is just Matthew 5, Romans 12. I mean, this is just Matthew 7. I mean, there's just stuff that this tells us what to do. So we go, okay, I have the Word of God to instruct me. More than that, I have Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone, right? To really direct me in what I think and do. I mean, this idea of Jesus being the chief cornerstone, they, they called it like a, like a measuring stone, 
right? Because you knew, you set this, and it gives measurement to the wall's going that way, and the wall's going that way, and it's going to go right off the angles of the stone. And if you get that thing off, you're going you're gonna to be off kilter, man. So you, you, you measure everything against the stone. So in my life, your life, our life, what do we what do? We do? do we say, hey, I, I really want to be more like Pastor Scott. No, Scott's cool. Scott wouldn't want us to be more like Pastor Scott. Scott would be like, hey, whatever you see in me, that Jesus be like that. Whatever you see, that's just Scott. Oh, man, you don't want that. I would say that in my life. You would say that in your life. Our measuring stone is not pastors. It's not friends. It's not coworkers. It's not our fathers or uncles. I mean, those are all good things to learn from, but the real measuring stone is Christ. So he gives us direction. And then it says, in whom the whole structure being joined in together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together. So just as much as the word of God gives instruction and Jesus gives direction, we realize that we are the demonstration of his unifying power. The church is, again, not just an institution, not just a civic group. The church is, literally, verse 22, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what the church is. That's what we are together Here's what I want you to realize. In 2,000 years, literally, for 2,000 years, there has not been one single sacred space on the planet. Not one. You can go to Jerusalem. You can get up on the Temple Mount all you want. It's not a sacred space. You can go into the greatest cathedral. It's not a sacred space. You can go into the smallest little country church. It's not a sacred space. God removed all sacred spaces from the planet 2,000 years ago. You know what He replaced it with? Sacred gatherings. There are no sacred spaces. There are sacred gatherings. We are a sacred gathering. When we come together being built in Christ, unified in Him, we're a sacred gathering. And so we want to, as a church, be a sacred gathering where God is obviously felt. And the way God is going to be obviously felt is that God's people are passionately seeking Him in such a way that they have the peace of God, which then translates into a humility and unity under God in Christ. It's the only way it happens. And so what it means for us is truly pursuing, truly seeking Him as our peace, displaying our unity, and then offering all of that to others who need to know that same peace, that same God, and that same unity. So what this means for us is a couple of things. First of all, it means, you know what? We are now free to do certain things. As Christians, we are free to relate to others. We are free to befriend others. We're free to love others. And when I say that, I don't just mean love the lovely and befriend those who are easy to get along with and relate to people that are just like us. No, we are actually freed to be ambassadors. We're freed to go and, and literally, it says in Jude, put our hands in the fire and reach in and pull out. I mean, this is what we're freed to do. We're freed to bear with one another in their burdens. We're free to make peace. We're free to do that. Sometimes we look at all this and go, oh, I have to relate, I have to befriend, I have to love, I have to bear with idiots. No, we get to, we're free to. The other thing that this means is, you know, because you're free to, you may need to choose to do some of those things. You may need to choose to get out of your comfort zone. You may need to choose to love an enemy. You may need to choose to integrate with a group that up till this point you've actually just... Uh, curse the group on your couch or in your car. Maybe it's even within the church itself. Right? Maybe there's broken relationships in family or friends or church or whatever else that, that, that you need to see healed. So how would you do that? How would you go about trying to remedy any kind of broken relationship? And when I say broken, it may be they wronged you, it may be you wronged them. It, it doesn't even matter. If they wronged you, you are, as a Christian, responsible to try to fix that as much as if you wrong them and you should go and fix it. I mean, if you're aware, if there's tension, if there's brokenness, you have a responsibility. So what are some ways that you can prepare to fulfill that responsibility? Here's the first thing. If you need to deal with some kind of broken relationship where there is not unity, first thing you need to do is pray. You need to pray. You need to pray, first and foremost, God, I just want to be close to you so I can have your peace because I'm going to need your peace to go and address this. So you just pray, God, give me peace. God, be my presence. God, may it not be about me. May it be about you. You pray, God, I pray for them. I pray for me. You pray for all of us. You pray. Second thing, review. 
Not review what they did wrong or what you did wrong. Review what God says to do when somebody's done you wrong or you've done somebody wrong. Just go back to the playbook and review. Third, set a time. Set a time where you say, I'm going to contact them so we can meet. Can I tell you what this does not mean? Do not send an email. I'm totally serious. People are like, all right, I'll I'll send them an email. No, no, no. Emails do not work. Do not work. Don't ever believe the myth that they'll work. They make you feel good. They usually make the other person feel bad. They don't work. Right? It needs relationship. Don't even send an email that says, hey, can we meet sometime? I'd say call them. Because email can have all kinds of tone attached to it. Right? This is about relationships. A relationship really does begin with communication. So you just call and say, hey, can we set a time to meet? I just want to talk to you about some stuff. So you get together. When you get together, here's the fourth thing. Know your goal. And what's your goal? It's unity. Your goal is unity. It's not getting things off your chest. It's not venting. It's not so you can just go, oh, I feel better. Boom! Right? No, unity is your goal. As you meet together, seek to serve that person, even if they've done you wrong. Seek to serve versus trying to win. You don't need to be right. Just do right. That'll serve you well. And then after you've met, keep praying that a root of bitterness does not return and defile many. Right? Because it's really easy to say, man, it's all done, we solved it, we met, everything else, and then you walk away and go, there's a couple of things I didn't agree with, but whatever. You know this one? Right? But for the sake of unity, I didn't bring it up. Now, that's okay. You may not have to go back, but if you go, I didn't agree, oh, but I didn't like the way that he said that. That, that guy's a jerk, but whatever. You know, like, root of bitterness. So pray for your own heart, pray for their heart, that no root of bitterness springs up so choose to choose to heal broken relationships in your life and then also in that choose to be a healer to a broken world by sharing the message of restoration healing peace comfort and salvation let's pray together jesus i pray that we will be what you want us to be we will seek what you want us to seek we will love unity like we love truth like we love the cross like we love the resurrection like we love morality i mean these are all things we can love should love do love but but i also pray that we will love peace and unity with the same intensity maybe we be truly your peacemakers bound in the bond of peace in your name amen